0: Good morning, everybody. This is Brian Oaks. Welcome to Everything co You know, this is February, and this is Black History Month. Started out with one week, and now it's up to a month. Started right here in Washington, D.C. And Black History Month is celebrated by the study of African American life and history. And this year, the theme is the crisis in black education. The crisis in black education now one of my favorite friends is on the phone with us this morning mr david thompson david good morning good
1: morning vernon how are you
0: good good and one of the reasons you one of my favorite friends is you know you know a lot of history
1: <laughs> well it's not because of my age <laughs> it's not because you're.
0: i thought you were at least a hundred i mean what <laughs> Even being European descent, we call that white. How did you get so involved in black history?
1: Well, uh, I put it all down to uh, I, I grew up in England and I was um, my family were living in uh, Boston, England, which is the town which is the uh, forefather of Boston, you know, uh, United States. There was an American air base near near Boston, and um, this was 1954, 55. And um, the uh, U.S. Air Force people used to come into town on a Friday uh, to uh, enjoy the weekend, but as soon as they got off the bus, the uh, black Americans and the white Americans separated completely. And uh, regretfully, in that town, the uh, owners of public houses, uh, the the pubs, which my dad was one of them, um, agreed to have a boycott and not allow for black American Air Force members to come into the pubs. And my mother and father decided that that was um, just unacceptable to them, given their own ethics. And uh, given that um, we had fought a war and America had been on our side and uh, we didn't pick and choose who who was on our side, uh, it was Americans that were on our side. And uh, so they were the only pub that allowed for black uh, American Air Force people to come in and drink and, you know, play darts and all of those kinds of things. And I was... Um, sort of adopted by one american who i have been trying to find and cannot find uh whose name was wes wesley um but he was a most wonderful young fella but he uh, he was um, a boxing champion and i loved boxing and um so he bought me um boxing gloves and uh We were rationed in England at the time, and so he could get things on base that uh, my parents couldn't get in the grocery store. So uh, he might on the weekend bring us um, meat or lamb or things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, He brought me double bubble um, chewing gum, which of course I chewed for the first time and then learnt from West how to blow a bubble um, but anyhow that was um, all part of my growing up and our pub was uh, was uh, shunned by the rest of the publicans uh, for having broken the color bar and uh, my parents uh, stood up and just said we're we're open to everybody so that was um I'd be um you know. 13, 14, 15, uh, when all that, that was going on. But um, uh, the Black Airmen came to our pub. They brought us their records. Uh, we played them on the pub uh, loudspeaker, and uh, our pub became a, a favorite haunt for both blacks and whites in Boston that uh, wanted to um, live across the color bar. And that had tremendous impact upon me as a, as a young person.
0: David, I thought you were younger than me. If you were thirteen or fourteen at that age, that means you are older than me.
1: <laughs> well, I'm uh, I'm seventy four.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. I'll be seventy this year.
1: Yeah. And yeah, I always yeah.
0: thought you were younger. So you, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> okay.
1: So that double bubble. Okay.
0: That is a very interesting story to how you got acclimated or introduced to black America with the music and the song and the boxing and entertainment and just to know people as people.
1: Right, right. And one of the things that that occurred that I think has a long uh, streak as a result of it is um, there were uh, a number of um, uh, black airmen who had their families with them. And uh, one in particular who lived with us, uh, uh, my mum uh, and, and dad put them up at the pub. We, we had a boarding house so um, people could stay there as well. And so we were the only place in Boston where um, black airmen could stay overnight. And uh, he lived with us for a while, but it was a little costly because, you know, we had um, sort of hotel prices. And uh, my mother set out to find uh, a place for him at a much uh, cheaper cost. And she searched all over and we understood the meaning of uh, racial segregation and housing discrimination and, uh, you know, the issues of, you know, how do blacks find housing when whites don't want to uh, have them in the neighborhood. And I remember walking with that black family uh, all the way, g- helping carrying their uh, luggage uh, to to that place and just wondering why was it that it had taken so long for somebody to be willing to house uh, this ordinary family, you know, who I really didn't know, you know, ab- about, mm-hmm. well, they're black and so they should be discriminated against, you know. Well,
0: that's a great segue into the Thurgood Marshall story, mm-hmm. because I know him as Supreme Court Justice and NAACP lawyer, and I know him as at the at the top of his game, if you will. But you're telling the story in an article that you wrote that all of his history, and he didn't start that way, right in Baltimore. So, you want right. to tell us a little bit about his early life.
1: Well, a number of years ago, I realized that uh, there were a number of co-op connections that Thurgood Marshall was involved in. And I began to sort of track those down. So the the pathway kind of leads like this. He went to uh, Howard University to get his degrees. And uh, there he was a member of a uh, cooperative which furnished all of the Howard students and faculty with uh, books and academic uh, support materials and things like that. So that was the first cooperative that uh, Thurgood Marshall was a part of that, uh, that I'm aware of.
0: David, can I Uh, stop you a second? Yeah. Uh, So there was a cooperative bookstore. Correct at Howard. And what I just recently found out through the Dr. Jessica Gordon Nimhart's book is there was a cooperative bookstore at the little school I went to in Bluefield, West Virginia. Oh really? Okay. And the, (laughs) the bookstore made money and they gave scholarships to students to go on to college, which I found interesting. And then also it was disbanded and they don't know why, but they said that the board of education disbanded it. So I don't know if they said they couldn't keep it up because blacks had more, were getting wealth or had more opportunity. I have no sense of why they would stop something that looked like it was doing a great job, both providing services and getting wealth so that people could continue their education.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, you you may or may not be able to find out, you know, how that happened. The cooperative bookstore, I believe, lasted at uh, Howard for a number of decades, but I don't know why it closed when it finally did,
0: Mm -hmm. right? So he was in a bookstore at Howard while he was going to school and law school. So he went to Howard law school.
1: Right, Uh, right. Uh, And there were a number of of the teachers at um, Howard who spoke about the role of cooperatives as a part of economic development and uh, the growth uh, of the black economy. There were a number of uh, professors there who were... um, quite taken by uh, W.E.B. Bois in that uh, he espoused uh, cooperatives as a part of the way in which blacks could gain economic freedom and equal rights in the United States. So uh, he probably came across that philosophy. Um, you know, I don't have his record of, you know, which classes he went to, and which teachers he took, but undoubtedly he would learn uh, something about cooperatives in that particular era.
0: So we're talking about
1: 1933, 36. Mm hmm. OK. Yeah, the
0: early 30s. So he's at Howard. He's from Baltimore. Comes to Howard. He's going to school and it doesn't look like he's from a wealthy family
1: no no he's uh, you know from a, a, a moderately well-to-do uh black family but not not a wealthy family um certainly they were able to uh, support him going to school which would not be the norm in those days and especially with him then getting uh, a law degree which you know would take longer but he was able to do that. He had the support of his family. I think he used to come on the train from uh, Baltimore into D.C. Um, that was, and, and stayed at home, and therefore he saved money uh, as, as a result of doing that. But he got his uh, degrees, and he had been noticed as just being a pretty competent uh, lawyer with a tremendous amount of passion for... Uh, civil rights by a gentleman who at that point headed up the NAACP uh, legal division in uh, New York City, and that person asked uh, Thurgood Marshall to come to New York City <laughs> okay. to be his second in command, and so... so was that, that uh, was
0: Charles de Houston, who was the vice dean of Howard School of Law?
1: That's the one, <clears throat> yep.
0: And Marshall that's was one. number one in his class, okay. Yeah.
1: So. Yes, he, uh, he he's re- that that fellow is renowned for his legal acumen
0: we've got to get ready to take our first break David so sure I think this is a good place to take it so we've got the first early years of Thurgood Marshall Baltimore DC with a wealth of history on this cooperative in Howard except that if you go talk to people at Howard now there's no knowledge of cooperative at least As I've tried to talk to people, the dean of the business school, and I'm trying to get into the president. But right now we're going to take our first break. Please don't touch the dial. We'll be right back with David Thompson and more on Thurgood Marshall's life. Fifteen fifty AM, WOL, at 95.9 9. FM. Information is power, and that's why the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program, to give you information about cooperatives so that you can use this information to either start a cooperative, go find a cooperative. As Thurgood Marshall, um, which we're talking about today, the article that David Thompson wrote reads, Thurgood Marshall, From Cooperative Apartments to the Supreme Court. So he was in cooperatives early on in his life, both at Howard in the bookstore and as we'll continue later on in <clears throat> living in cooperatives in harlem so David, what other cooperatives was uh, Thurgood Marshall involved in early on? We've got the bookstore at Howard, but there was a couple in new york
1: right he um He moved to New York with his uh, first wife, uh, whose whose nickname was Buster. And uh, he had that job with the NAACP, but um, he didn't really earn enough for them to, uh, you know, keep a budget that was um, uh, favorable to them. So uh, you write that
0: you write that it was two thousand four hundred dollars a year. That's two (laughs) hundred dollars a month.
1: I, I do write that and I. And I think to myself, oh, my God, you know. So I'm sure in those days, relative to a number of people, that was uh, that was a better wage than most. But I'm sure for what he did, he was vastly underpaid. But uh, he and his wife had to make ends meet, and they both joined a consumer co-op in Harlem and one of the things that they did is they delivered uh, goods from that co-op to its members. So they were both a uh, delivery boy and a delivery girl and they earned extra money uh, doing that kind of thing and I think that that probably brought them uh, lower uh, lower cost on the goods that they bought from the co-op because they were doing the uh, deliveries for the co-op. So let me just, and so let me quite, let me uh, he would become... You know quite familiar with how uh, blacks were running cooperatives uh, in harlem and other places and you know see that it had a uh, value to its members and it was uh, a place for them to reduce their food costs which would then be you know after housing would be their their largest secondary cost so
0: Um, just quickly, David, a definition of a consumer cooperative. You said he joined a food cooperative, a consumer cooperative, a cooperative defined by whoever owns and controls the business. And if it's only right. controlled by the employees, it's called a worker cooperative. If it's owned and controlled by the people that buys and uses the products or services, it's called a consumer cooperative. So you end up with people that come into the store and buy the food and, 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 uh, the other things out of the store, they own the business. So they own and control the business. So it's called a consumer cooperative. Correct. And he worked there as a delivery board. They're a good Marshall. I'm surprised that he had that kind of job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, He probably delivered everything on time and uh, in good shape. And so he was probably a very, very uh, dependable uh, delivery boy, because, you know, when you think about what he delivered for uh, black people in America and through his work as a legal person, he was um, very, very good at delivering what was needed, you know.
0: So where was he living at that time?
1: well he um, I think first he lived with a relative, a relative of either him or of Buster. Um, And they did that for a while. And uh, then a little later on, as he um, got a little bit more money, he moved into an apartment building, which was a rental building called the Edgecombe in Harlem. Now, at the time, the Edgecombe was regarded as the black white house in the United States um uh, different other uh luminaries um, lived there the uh, Walter white who was then the uh, executive director of the NAACP lived there and uh, numerous other folks and so um, if you had anything important going on in the black community in America you would frequently end up at the edge come because the inhabitants there were the uh, you know were the elite but they were all renters because uh, there was no way for them to find ownership opportunities. And um, one of the things, um, I just want to go back a little bit to the consumer co-op. You know, if one could interview people who are dead, you'd learn a lot more history than than we do know. But um, working at the NAACP at the same time as uh, Marshall was Ella Baker. And Ella Baker is one of my great heroines of uh, all women feminist activists uh, in the entire world. She just has a history of having achieved so much and, um, you know, some other show we should probably uh, you know sort of focus on her but she was uh, a tremendous organizer of cooperatives during that time so did Marshall become a member of that cooperative because Ella Baker was on the staff at the same time at the NAACP in the same office Um, it's quite likely that that occurred I can't prove it but quite likely that it did And um, one of the gentlemen who was a big voice for the consumer cooperatives in those days was a man called George Shiler, who sort of started life as a liberal um, black writer, economist publisher of papers and things like that, and um, regretfully over time moved to to the more conservative side. Um, But um, Shiloh was um, enamored with the cooperatives as a way for uh, blacks to get out of poverty. And in fact, he might have been the first black to go to Rochdale in England, because uh, he was given a scholarship to go to England to study cooperatives. And that was at the same, that was in the same era that um, Thurgood Marshall was a Delivery Boy at that particular co-op and when all of that was going on you know, Black Harlem at that time was, um, you know, the fountainhead of uh, so much uh, thinking, music culture, expression etc. Um, but cooperatives were a, a big part of the Harlem that was being developed at that time.
0: You know, it's amazing how all of these names, I like Ella Baker's whole name, Ella jo Baker.
1: Yeah, Joe Baker. Ella yeah. Joe Baker, yeah.
0: And there is a co-op here in DC that's named after her, Ella, Ella Joe Baker Intentional Community. And so I've gotten a little bit about her history through that cooperative, and they've been on the, on the program too. But it's a, Ella Joe Baker, Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, it, it, all of these people, and this, the Snyder person started the, Young Negro Cooperative League in
1: 1930. Correct. That's
0: it. Yeah. So what happened to all of its history? Because Jessica gordon Imhardt said the Young Negro uh, Cooperative League, she told me where they used to meet, and I've just lost the name. Um. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. And when I talked to these people about cooperatives that's there now, they knew nothing about cooperatives. Same thing at Howard. I talked to the dean about cooperatives. I was in a meeting and I brought up cooperatives and there was just total silence. And nowhere had I learned about cooperatives in my growing up, so 1930, 1940, 1950 in New York, you got all of these cooperatives going on and like you said, Thurgood Marshall right here in DC, right at Howard, and that knowledge isn't there. So that's why we're having this program and I'm thanking you for what you've done and what your parents taught you early on in your life back in England. That we're all people. Huh.
1: Well, I, f- I feel fortunate, um, indeed, because it it, ha- it it introduced me to a, a richer part of life. As a result, I was uh, going to go back to Ella Jo Baker, though that um, you know she just spent the early part of her career organizing cooperatives. She used to go to conferences that were held then by the Cooperative League of the United States of America. She uh, uh, got a great deal of education about cooperatives. She was a great cooperative educator in her own right, going around uh, mostly New York, but in other parts of the United States. And, you know, we we have other parts to talk about with her, but she was the first staff member for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And uh, she then, also became the first staff member for SNCC, and she had always wanted young people to uh, learn about how to organize because she felt that that was you know a critical part of doing it but her her work in cooperatives was the uh, the core of her organizing skills, and the way in which cooperatives operate was the way that Ella jo Baker then taught other organizations how to do things. She was very much uh, a grassroots person and one who believed in one person, one vote, uh, which is uh, one of the principles of cooperatives and listening to every voice and, uh, you know, she and Thurgood Marshall working in that same office uh, in New York City, um, you know, you, you can imagine the kind of discussions that went on Fantastic. about what needed to be done to change America.
0: And some of those need to be talked about right now. But let's go take our second break. (laughs) David, thank you so very much. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks with Everything Cooperative with David Thompson on the phone with us out of California. David has written an article, Thurgood Marshall, from Cooperative Apartment to Supreme Court. So, David, let's go back to this living. He was in an apartment building uh, in New York when he went there to Edgecombe, and then he moved into a cooperative. What was that cooperative? Is that-
1: Morningside Gardens Cooperative. Uh, that was a, a cooperative that had been specifically... Uh, set up by a a group of institutions, uh, including Columbia University, and the Rockefellers um, put up a fair amount of funding to make Morningside happen, but they wanted to have an example of an integrated building, that also provided ownership opportunities to uh, all of the residents who live there. And uh, Morningside was built, It's, um, I think it's around about 1,000 units or so. It still exists and uh, does very, very well up there in uh, Morningside near Columbia University. But um, as the uh, founding members were uh, putting it together, uh, they began to think about um, who could they approach to live there, uh, whose life could be bettered by uh, their being there. And uh, they thought immediately of uh, Marshall, who was then, of course, uh, the lead Uh, at uh, Houston had left earlier on and uh, Marshall had become the lead attorney for the NAACP Legal and Educational Fund they asked uh, he and uh, what was then his uh, new wife whose name was Sissy Buster died of a terrible case of cancer Mm. during this period Anyhow, they asked uh, Marshall and Sissy to uh, come and uh, live at Morningside and so Marshall was one of the first occupants uh, of a unit that had never, ever been occupied before. And, you know, to an extent, uh, this was the, the first attempt at sort of institutional integration in a cooperative in, uh, in the United States.
0: So we get Thurgood Marshall, in 1954, they won the Brown versus Board of Education. And Correct. he was living in the Edgecombe there. Yes. And then in 58, when they opened up this Morning Gardens Cooperative, they approached him. So he was well known in 1958 because of the work that he had done in the NAACP.
1: Indeed. Indeed he was, yes. But while he was, I think in his first years at Morningside, he became involved in the Little Little Rock 9 case. And um, so some of the things that I've been able to find out is that um, Daisy Bates, who was uh, in essence the, uh, the shepherd of all of uh, what good and useful came out of uh, the Little Rock Nine case, um, she talks about going to his apartment, uh, his co-op apartment, and um, being with the family and being with people like Alex Haley and others um, you know, for fundraisers and different things like that, and all of that was happening in this co-op apartment in New York City.
0: Boy, I would love to have been there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So- uh, if you go to Google and you put in Mar- Marshall Thurgood and family, um, one of the pictures that comes up is um, uh, a beautiful uh, photo of uh, Thurgood and his wife, Sissy, and their Two boys, because one boy was uh, when they moved there. One of the boys was a young person, but the other, uh, the uh, younger child, was born while they were at Morningside. So that was uh, that was the first home that marshall ever owned it was his first home ownership opportunity in the united states the first time where uh, he would be able to deduct the mortgage interest and uh, property taxes just like all other americans from his taxes and uh, he had all of the rights of home ownership and that uh, came to thurgood marshall be by being a member of the morningside co-op because he could not find a place um, to buy because of the um, discrimination that occurred in New York City and the covenants that prevented, you know, mixed race or blacks from uh, owning a home in much of, of Manhattan.
0: So all of this reminded you of your, your experience back in England with the World War II airmen, the black yeah. airmen yeah yep, surely did in England and he could not get a home here in the United States of America Couldn't right in, right In Manhattan correct yeah well I turned to the images and they' yeah they got a couple of him right in front of the I don't know if that's the Capitol building where they're standing in front of okay so Thurgood Marshall now has a bookstore experience in D.C. He cooperative bookstore. He has a cooperative grocer in New York where he delivered food, and now he's in housing in Morningstar. Um, what else? What else did he do uh, as it relates to co-ops?
1: Well, perhaps you know there, there there certainly has to be a high regard for so much of the work that Thurgood Marshall did. But because of my particular interest in housing and, and in particular, in cooperative housing, he played a role that uh, I think highlights the value of housing cooperatives in breaking color bars in the United States. He was uh, hired by a cooperative that was in Illinois called York Center Cooperative, And The York Center Cooperative had been established by a group of people who, after the Second World War, decided that they wanted to have um, an uh, an interracial community. A lot of them were um, people who had fought in the World War II, and they had fought alongside blacks and whites together. And uh, they went forward, you know, with a, an idealistic framework of having a, a cooperative housing venture. And um, they were being prevented by the FHA. Federal Housing Agency from being um, given insurance for the mortgages that they wanted to take out uh, because the FHA believed uh, at that time that um, they they would make a loan to a black in a black area, but they wouldn't make a loan to a black in a white area. And, uh, you know, they all said it was to protect their uh, their capital and, uh, and their asset. But it was, you know, it was blatant, pure uh, racism, without a doubt. Um, and York Center engaged Marshall to um, do something about that and to enable them to be able to get um, FHA insurance. Uh, At the same time, around the rest of the United States, there were a number of other cooperative communities being put together. Uh, One was being developed by Frank Lloyd Wright in New York, uh, just just outside of New York City, uh, by a group of uh, mainly Jewish activists from New York City who were trying to start an interracial co-op community. There were um, two in Los Angeles, that were being organized, and there was one in the Palo Alto area. Uh, These were all being supported by the cooperative organizations very, very strongly. They were all fairly large cooperatives of between 100 and 500 families uh, that wanted to uh, live together interracially. And eventually, the work of uh, Thurgood Marshall, led to his being the main lawyer on the case called Shelley versus Kramer, which was the eventual breakdown of the color bar in housing in the United States. But um, I have read um, Marshall's piece that kicked that off with the Supreme Court, and in it he mentions... Um, two of these cooperatives as um, being uh, impaired, you know, by the FHA um, uh, restriction. Um, The case was won, but the FHA took another two to three years before they actually did what the court told them that they had done. Mm -hmm. And regretfully, during that period, these were all Cooperatives of moderate income people, they were not able to afford the long legal costs of the fight and the long legal costs of holding the land and holding up the process so that they made certain amends in the way that they did things. You know, for example, the one in L.A., um, Agreed that racial covenants could be put on the uh, on the deeds for each of the houses, and therefore um, they were not, you know, able to allow for blacks to live there. So the the hopes of all of these groups were diminished considerably, and in some cases, the organisations went out of business because they refused to. Um, You know have them be whites only communities but i think those struggles those fights were so critical as a part of breaking down the discrimination in housing and the cooperatives led the way in the efforts to uh, integrate housing so i'm i'm very proud of what the cooperatives did during that time and i'm very grateful that thurgood marshall raised his voice and he wrote he wrote a letter to uh, president truman um specifically about this and as a res- and, and talked about these two cooperatives and then president truman um did an executive order barring the fha from discrimination
0: 21 page letter mm-hmm. <laughs> okay <laughs> i'm good to get a one or two page letter out of 21 pages yeah page <laughs> It's fascinating this this history that that is not known. It's also very fascinating. I'm glad that you do your research and bring it out, David, that the research the the, the history of cooperatives and how the cooperatives have led the way, particularly in housing, but in a lot of different ways. Because of the cooperative principles. And the first one is voluntary and open membership. Cooperatives are voluntary organizations, open to all persons able to use their services and willing to accept the responsibilities of membership without regard to gender, social, racial, political, or religious discrimination. And um, all co-ops don't work that way because there's people in co-ops. But when cooperatives that are that are working that way, it causes them to really get out in front of things like discrimination for housing or any other form for that matter love the work you do David we've got to take our third break and we only have one more segment coming up and uh, we can talk more about Good Marshall but I also like to change a little bit in this next segment to talk about uh, the environment we are in in the US right now with our new president and some of the things that he's doing with banning Muslims or picking up uh, Latin folks and you know deporting them and what that does is other forms of discrimination so it's discrimination whatever it looks like whether it's blacks or religious or whatever and how that affects people and what we're doing in the cooperative world to combat those kinds of things Mm -hmm. and I know you talked about uh, what happened with the uh, Japanese internment camps but we'll be right back to talk a little bit more about now and the future and if there's any other thoughts that you want to talk about the past with Thurgood Marshall I'd love to hear that too we'll be right back back everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Everything Cooperative with our radio show and we're talking about uh, Black History, Black History Month with David Thompson who has written an excellent article on Thurgood Marshall from Cooperative Apartments to the Supreme Court and the work that he has done to overcome discrimination in the courts, uh, changing laws, changing the way our government, FHA and other government entities treated blacks. So, David, anything else you want to talk about as it relates to Thurgood and this, this wonderful history?
1: Well, I'll just add um, one of the piece that um, I, I think stands out and, um, and it also, um, you know, sort of impacts upon uh, the Trump era as well. But during that time, uh, Levittown was uh, created on Long Island. And uh, this was uh, 1949, 1950, 1951, so the same era that uh, Thurgood Marshall is doing all of this wonderful work on behalf of interracial cooperatives, Uh, Levittown opens up, and um, I think in the end it accommodates, you know, 50,000 people, something like that. One of the uh, people who wanted to apply for Levittown was a man called Eugene Burnett. He uh, drove over there very early one morning to be in line because he knew that the lines would be really long. He stood in line for hours along with lots of other people. Uh, He was a vet. He had been qualified for the VA, and so he was all excited about the fact that he probably had a pretty good chance of getting one of the houses. And uh, when he got to the front of the line, he was counseled that he should... step aside and somebody else would talk with him, and the basic thrust of the conversation was that um, Mr. Levitt has not yet decided whether blacks can live in Levittown, so we'll take your number and your name and address, and we'll put it on a list, and we'll give you a call if that happens. Uh, So Barnett drove back to his wife, um... You know, very sadly to find out that, you know, the nation that he had fought for, the war that he had fought for, the principles that he had fought for um, didn't apply to him when he got home, um, and he was not going to get a home in Levittown, and this town was uh, created with an eventual population of 60,000 people living there, almost all of them being on VA loans or FHA insured loans and not one of the residents of Levittown when it opened up with 60,000 people were black.
0: When it opened, not one?
1: Not one. And so I, I compare that to Thurgood Marshall's work on, you know, defeating segregation and all of that. So even though uh, he did so much to stop it, um, the powers of institutions to continue doing that are so much stronger. So you, uh, you, you have victories, but then they actually don't take place. And that, that is, you know, that is one of the dilemmas of law in the United States. Uh, we, we don't have something that makes people do what they're supposed to.
0: I was just wondering what Eugene Burnett felt like getting up early in well,
1: the morning. Well, I believe he wrote a fair amount about it, and so if you go trolling, I guess, on Google, you you can you can learn. But uh, So I know we'll move on to other things, but what I write about in my article is that um, not everybody who fought in World War II was discriminated against. Uh, because one of the people who did get a house at Levittown was a former U-boat crew member from Germany. <laughs> How about that for a. Uh,
0: oh, so they let the German in who yeah. fought against us. Right, right. Oh, God. <laughs> they wouldn't let the black in who fought for us. Right. But they'll let the German in who fought against us.
1: <laughs> so, um, so there you are
0: well my mom and dad met in new york after world war ii they were both in the service my mother and my father and they fought in the war so those were tough times they didn't talk about it though they they didn't
1: talk about i'm sure they felt tremendous discrimination you know i either in rental or ownership
0: well the other the other problem with new york i taught school in new york in 19 so what was that 71 Mm-hmm. And I stayed with my aunt and uncle, not because of discrimination so much, but it was because of, it cost so much to live in New York. Mm-hmm. It, it just, on a teacher's salary, I taught at City University in New York, but on a teacher's salary, you just could not afford to go out and get your own place. It just right. wasn't happening. So, in your article about the Japanese internment camps, you said that one of the ways that they made it was by forming co-ops.
1: Correct. Yeah. You know, it's uh, February the 19th is the 75th anniversary of the order by President Roosevelt that all of the Japanese-Americans uh, on the West Coast had to be moved inland. And uh, as a result, uh, about one hundred and ten to 120,000 um, Japanese-American families were... Uh, taken off to um, different uh, temporary camps and then moved to uh, permanent camps. There were 10 camps set up around the United States. They had an average of about 12,000 people each living in them. These were all built um, in a matter of months uh, in fairly out-of-the-way places. And uh, all of the Japanese-American population on the West Coast was moved to those 10 camps. Uh, The organization that I'm on the board of called Associated Cooperatives, which is based here in Davis, California, we were chosen by the uh, government agency to set up a consumer cooperative in each of the camps. And uh, in particular, I'm more knowledgeable about the one at Manzanar, which is the closest to the Bay Area and therefore had the most um, relationship to associated cooperatives because our trucks used to deliver on a weekly basis um, things to the camps because there were 10,000 people have a lot of needs on a daily basis, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, we set up cooperatives in those camps all except one of them had a co-op camp um, another one kind of had a non-profit that worked like a co-op that was heart mountain in wyoming but the uh, the co-op in manzanar at its peak in 44 and 45 was the second largest consumer cooperative in the united states well, you can imagine what it's like when 10,000 people have only one place to shop at, um, uh, and and for most of their daily goods. So it employed around about 250 people. It was the largest employer in the camp. It paid all of the people that worked for it. It paid the largest dividend of any consumer cooperative in the United States uh, in 1944 and 1945. Um, People in the first year didn't know what the patronage dividend is, which is the sharing of the profits of a consumer cooperative or another kind of cooperative uh, with the members according to their patronage. And so uh, for the first year when they paid a patronage, uh, most people had thrown away their slips. They had no idea what patronage dividend meant. They had no idea really what a co-op was. All they knew is that at least they owned, you know, the organization that they were getting stuff from. And uh, the staff, however, almost all had a background in cooperatives because they came from agricultural cooperatives and they knew that the factory's dividend was a very, very important element of how a co-op worked. So in the first year, uh, the staff... Um, made a fortune because they had collected all the receipts of all of the these members had thrown them on the floor, and then turned them in. The Patrick's refund was declared, and the, they became very rich. But nobody ever left a receipt the second year.
0: I know that's right. Now, David, <laughs> we only have about a million and a half left yeah. to go. Right. And I could use another hour to talk to you, buddy. <laughs> you have so much great information. How does this, the knowledge from that and then turns to how we could use cooperatives to help in the situation today
1: and we have a minute <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well my assumption is we, we constantly have to teach people about how to work together how to know that there's an advantage in unity um, there are um, Many ways in which that could go on today, uniting our capital through a credit union, uh, uniting our aspects for better communities through housing cooperatives, uh, uniting our interest in better quality food for our children through food cooperatives. Um, there are lots of ways in which cooperatives can, you know, not only strengthen our lives, but give us a platform to show others how to build a better life, because um, lots of people, you know, just don't know, and there are lots of people who lose hope in times like this, and uh, the cooperatives uh, are... are you know, a mechanism for, uh, you know, rebuilding that hope, rebuilding that faith, and learning how to work with each other on those issues, which, you know, are have a paramount effect upon how our lives are. So I, I would, you know... You know, just suggest that people think about, uh, are there cooperatives that they could be a part of? Is there there a credit union that they could join rather than being um, out
0: there by themselves? David, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Please have a great week and live cooperative and learn how to work together. Thank you. All right. Washington DC's News Talk, 1450 AM, and 95.9 FM.